Hello everybody, my name is Elena Schulz-Gimeno. I'm here with David Robinson, who is visiting us today in Brussels. He's the executive director of the Canadian Association of University Teachers, which represents 70,000 academic staff in universities and colleges across Canada. Um, thank you very much for being here with us for a seminar on open access and copyright in education, mm -hmm. the first of its kind in the history of Education International. Yes. And it was quite an insightful experience, I think, because we all agree that we live in a, in a new and so-called digital age where, where teachers and academics have increasing access to, to materials such as videos, pictures, art plays. And there is this, this conflictive relationship sometimes between copyright laws, the use of materials in the classroom, we have been talking about all this, but I would like you to sum, sum it up for us, summarize it and, and tell us how, how copyright and education go together, what it is about and why it should be on the agenda for education unions specifically. Yeah. Well, teachers at all levels and students at all levels need to have access to educational materials. And in most cases, those educational materials fall under copyright. And uh, depending upon what jurisdiction you're in, teachers have some degree, more or less, of flexibility in terms of using copyright material in the classroom uh, without permission or without payment. Uh, and that's where the nexus kind of comes in. And increasingly, as you outlined in your introduction, where we have different kinds of materials now in digital formats, it's very easy to download pictures, you can do a Google search and find things. It puts many teachers in a bit of a gray zone of are they violating copyright by using these, these kinds of images? And the simple answer is it depends. It depends upon the context, it depends upon the legislative framework. So teachers really need to know about this and I think uh, teacher unions need to advocate for a broader exception uh, for the use of these materials for educational purposes because that serves the public good. Okay, so if I got it right, and, and, and please correct me, because maybe there are some misunderstandings concerning, concerning copyright in education. For instance, what's, what's the difference between open educational resources? What are the quality concerns about it? Maybe you could give us a few uh, practical examples as well of, of things that a teacher can or cannot do, depending, of course, on the on the national legislation. I yeah, guess. it's and again, it's hard to come up with one simple answer. I'd have to look at some countries' specific examples. But generally, I mean, we have a global framework for copyright. It's an old agreement called the Berne Convention, uh, which basically protects. Uh, the creators and gives them exclusive economic rights to exploit the works that they produce, whether it's a book, a photograph, a film, uh, a piece of artwork, a music score, any creative work, uh, there's, some, there's some protection. However, the, the Berne Convention also allows for countries to create exceptions generally for public purposes or for, for public good. Uh, so things like news reporting, uh, for citation in, in academic papers, and in some cases for education purposes as well. And so in many of the Anglo-Saxon countries, and I'll use those as, as the first example, uh, there is a national copyright law, an exception for education purposes. And those exceptions 
vary a little bit, but they generally say as long as you're using material that, that you find uh, in, in a fair way, that is for a non-commercial purpose, for educational purposes, to share with students, to use as an illustrative example on an exam question, uh, to cite in a research paper, that's generally protected. You don't need to pay the author or get permission from the author to, to reproduce that or show it. In other jurisdictions, it's much more complicated, especially in a lot of developing countries. Uh, exceptions for education are either narrowly defined or non-existent. And that's why one of the things I think we need to push for collectively through Education International is a global minimum standard so that uh, all teachers everywhere enjoy uh, some ability to use uh, copyright material for those non-commercial education purposes. It's vitally important, particularly in large parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, in the Asia-Pacific region, where frankly the school systems don't have the resources to buy the textbooks, to access the material, to pay the authors the price that's, that's needed. So I mean, opening up access is really fundamentally important uh, to achieving goals of education for all as well. Mm, I, I, I see your point and, and precisely I think the, the diversity of situations in, in different parts of the world uh, leads to different needs for resources but a minimum standard would definitely be, be interesting I guess. Yeah, and the minimum standard is also important too because in an in increasingly globalized world where you have maybe someone at the University of Accra uh, sending an uh, article or wanting to access an article from an author in the UK uh, but often can't access that article because it's behind a paywall, then has to find someone to pay for it because credit cards aren't very common in West Africa. Uh, it, it creates all kinds of gray areas too about the cross-border flow of these materials where the use in one jurisdiction may be legitimate but in the other jurisdiction isn't. So again, having some common standards, some common frameworks would really help facilitate uh, a, a freer flow of information worldwide. Yes. I think here at Education International, paywalls are definitely something that we are very concerned yeah. about. And, and also gray areas, because not everything is black or white in, in regards um, open access and, and copyright. How do you strike a good balance between defending teachers' interests as producers of materials, mm. because teachers also produce learning materials, and teachers as users of materials? So if we take into consideration that, that schools may foster a culture of collaboration and exchange. Um, how, how do you organize this, this balance? How do you keep the balance between these two, these two sides of the coin? Yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a, a really good question and it's a practical challenge. But the reality is that if you look at the balance between using versus creating, most teachers are heavy users of materials. We don't, we don't generate a lot of materials. In the higher education sector, it might be a little bit different, where you have professors who are writing research papers and so on. But even there, people aren't writing research papers to make money. Um, you don't, uh, you, you know, you don't, you don't publish the, your latest scientific uh, paper and expect you're going to get all kinds of royalties, or, or publish an academic book and get huge royalties. It doesn't happen uh, because there's just not a huge kind of demand for that kind of stuff. It's not, it's not like writing the latest Harry Potter book. You're not going to become a millionaire out of it. And I think most, most academics recognize that. So when you ask them, you know, what is more important for them? Well, for them, it's, it's, it's access. It's being able to share and have access to all the scientific information that, that they need to further their particular research. So I think in terms of the balance, you know, we would lean more towards the access side with a caveat, though. I would also say it's really important for academics, for, for teachers, 
who also produce material to maintain the copyright over their work, not to sign it away. And clearly, right now, the big publishing industries want you to sign your copyright away. If there's a way in which you can modify that to at least, maybe if you sign away the economic rights, that, but to maintain the right and the ability to make your publication freely available, uh, to maintain the moral rights, which is an element of copyright that allows you to uh, not have the work altered or used in ways that you don't want it to be used. So if it's used for commercial purposes and you don't like that. So there's ways in which you can do that, uh, but you have to maintain some control over your rights through the copyright regime. If not the economic rights, certainly the moral rights. Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're already, already um, tackling we're already tackling one of the um, points that I wanted to refer to next, which are the challenges when it comes to defending broad copyright exceptions for education. Mm. You just mentioned this about the uh, authorship and the mm. recognition of the mm. of the uh, let's say uh, individual work when the when it comes to producing material. But what other challenges do you see when it comes to defending? broad copyright exceptions? Well, the big challenge we have is a very well-financed, active lobbying industry that's led by the big publishing companies. Uh, in the academic realm that I'm most familiar with, it's Elsevier, uh, which has you know, a brilliant business model when you think about it. Uh, academics who are employed largely through the public purse work and produce papers. They're, they send them off to an Elsevier journal. Uh, Elsevier has people volunteer their time to review the papers and decide whether they're, they meet the standards for quality publication. Then they're published in very expensive journals that are sold back to the academics. So it's free labor that's then sold back. So it's, a, it's a brilliant business model, but I don't think it's one that's very fair. Uh, but, but Elsevier demands, uh, in most cases, uh, when you write an article for their journal, that you must sign over copyright to them. So they then have the exclusive rights over it, and you lose some of the ability to make it more available through open access, through, through an online uh, repository to post on your own website. So that's, that's, that's part of the struggle. At a global level, you know, what we're trying to do is work through the UN body, WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, to develop minimum standards or minimum um, exceptions for copyright for education purposes. And we're getting huge pushback from, not surprisingly, those countries that have, in which the large, big multinational publishers are based. So it's the United States, it's Canada, the European Union, and, and Japan are the big opponents of this. And I think we have to call them on being hypocritical. Uh, because in the U.S., in, in Canada, you have fair use, fair dealing provisions that allow for the use of materials for education purposes. And yet here at WIPO, these same countries are opposing giving those same rights and benefits to a large part of the world, and in fact, a large part of the developing world. So it's a real problem. And I think we have to call them out for being hypocritical. I think the same goes for the European Union, uh, which right now is going through a debate of providing more exceptions for copyright and yet opposing you know, tooth and nail, fighting tooth and nail at, at WIPO to prevent every other country from having the same rights and benefits. Could you explain WIPO a little bit more for our audience which might not be acquainted yeah. with this term? Yeah, WIPO is essentially a body of the United Nations. Uh, so like, like a UN body, it's main, made up mainly of member countries uh, that's supposed to oversee the uh, international regulation or the regulatory regime governing intellectual property rights. So not just copyright, but, but patents uh, and other things. It's responsible for uh, a number of internet treaties that were developed in the early two, 2000s and recently developed a, a new treaty in 2013 called the Marrakesh Treaty, 
which essentially allows for an exception for copyright purposes uh, for countries uh, to permit the um, uh, format transfer of materials for people who are visually impaired. So to take a book, make it into an audio version without seeking payment or uh, permission from the author. So it's really a way in ensuring that people who are visually impaired have access to the, the body of knowledge around the world. Okay. Well, I think we've learned a lot today. We've learned a lot about the links between education, copyright and open access. And I believe for Education International and its member organizations, such as the Canadian Association of University Teachers, it is a very, very important endeavor. And so thank you very much, David Robinson, for being here with us today. And uh, we're looking forward to the developments in this area. Great. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Enjoyed today's podcast? Then don't forget to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes.